Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. During the Civil War, the chief of ordnance for the Union, James Ripley, refused to talk to inventors who had war-winning weapons. Could the war have been shortened if he had? We'll talk about this when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. My husband and I, we met at a strip mall dance. He was 20, I was 17. It was a beautiful strip mall built by my grandfather after he'd emigrated from Holland to be a farmer. Anyway, when I saw my husband at that dance, I realized I'd seen him before at a big rally at the highway on-ramp for all the men who'd enlisted. He was going to war. Two weeks later, he left for basic training. Oh, I cried my eyes out that day. His train left the car dealership. But we rode to each other every day. I rode my bike the ten miles to the high-rise each morning, just so I could meet the mail when it got there. Four years later, he came home to me, and we married at the little convenience store downtown. When we lose a historic place, we lose a part of who we are. To learn how you can help protect places in your community, visit nationaltrust.org. History is in our hands. A message brought to you by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and the Ad Council. Listen. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with James M. Schmidt, author of Lincoln's Labels, America's Best Known Brands and the Civil War. We've been talking about some of the uh, really quite interesting stories of companies like Procter & Gamble or Borden or uh, Brooks Brothers that existed at the time of the Civil War that played a role in the Union War effort, producing goods for that. Uh, we were just talking about uh, Tiffany and Company, which uh, produced items that were perhaps a little more ornamental than than necessary, uh, things like presentation swords. Uh, I guess if you have uh, a million men under arms, there's a significant market for fancy officers' swords. Uh, did Tiffany make a lot of those? They did. I mean, you have to think of two different kinds of swords, the functional swords and, and the presentation or, or gift swords, and, and they made both, and they made thousands of the, of the functional swords um, after the, you know, the Army models. Um, but it's the presentation swords, the, the decorated ones with diamonds and, and, and other jewels and, and very fine engravings um, that cost, you know, in, in $1860, you know, $1,000, $2,000, even higher, um, that were given as gifts and, and, and really made them famous. So they, they uh, uh, th- there's also quite a bit about flags uh, that you mentioned. Where did the flags come from? Um, again, the flags uh, were, were born of wartime necessity and obviously were more important in the American Civil War than, than they are now, had more of a functional role than, than the uh, commemorative or decorative role that they have now. Um, and there were, there were public um, arsenals that, that also put out the flags, but Tiffany's flags were always done on commission by regiments or, or by you know interested citizens hoping to present nice colors to a to a hometown company or hometown regiment, um, and and they're recognized um, almost without fault as some of the most you know beautiful artwork for one thing, um, and 
and very much desired by regiments um, during the war. The uh, uh, to, to pick up the uh, subject mentioned in the introduction to this sector, you have a chapter on the magazine Scientific American, which of course continues. Um, actually, I don't, does it continue? Is, it, is it sure does. Yes. I, I don't. I admit I don't read it, uh, but I have have looked at it over the years many times. Um, and Scientific American promoted all kinds of wartime inventions, uh, but the Union officer in charge of ordnance, General Ripley, was not sympathetic to inventors. Now, uh, what, um, well, well, what kind of inventions did people present to him? Well, um, it's probably good for you that you saved Scientific American for the, you know, this last segment, because I'm so excited and passionate and interested in the wartime story of Scientific American. I, I could probably wax poetic about it for an hour, but um, Scientific American, on behalf of the inventors in the country, um, had a not even a love-hate, it was a hate-hate relationship with the Ordnance Department and Ripley, and I think they understood that some of the, uh, the novelties that, that came his way um, you know, weren't even based in science, uh, let alone practical to manufacture, but Ripley, um, fairly or not, had a reputation for unequivocally turning um, inventors away, whether their, their invention had merit, merit or not. And I don't go into too many specific examples of, of things that were actually brought to Ripley's desk. There's an, an excellent book, and I'm sure you know of it, Robert Bruce's uh, Lincoln and the Tools of War, first written in the yeah. 50s and available in a very nice reprint um, that tells that general story of of invention in the American Civil War just fantastically. What I really concentrated on um, was the wartime story of the magazine as an institution. I mean, uh, from Robert Bruce to, you know, even modern works, anything really to do with technology, they draw on the pages of Scientific American to support theses or to, uh, you know, to look at, you know, histories around certain inventions, but nobody really um, has written about the magazine's experience as an institution uh, during the war itself, and that's what I was really trying to do. Well, did... Um there's uh, there's a theory. I mean, most people uh, certainly read Robert Bruce's uh, uh, work or any work about the technology of the time. Ripley always comes off as the bad guy, um, as you say, the hate hate relationship with uh, inventors. He he doesn't like people bringing these newfangled ideas in. Uh, he doesn't like it when Abraham Lincoln shows up with new ideas or says sends him a note saying, "Why don't we test this out." But to play the devil's advocate, uh, there was a book some years ago, I, I think this is where I read it, uh, Arming the Suckers by Ken Bauman, which is a book about weapons of the Illinois regiments. Uh, and when you get into you know, Civil War geekdom, we're getting pretty far down down into the, the sediment here. Uh, but at the same time, he argued in that book that the that Ripley was actually right uh, not to be accepting all these new kinds of weapons, that without testing them uh, extensively, not just for weeks, but for months or even years, uh, the chance of, of the government stopping production on Springfield muskets and tooling over to something else that might not work uh, would have been an insanely dangerous experiment, and that the Ripley was fully justified. Sure, and, and I try, I think, to be, I mean, I, I certainly talk about the, the correspondence or the experience that Scientific American's readers and subscribers and, 
and and inventors that used the patent agency the 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 bad experiences they saw that they had with Ripley. But I try and, and be somewhat fair. He had, he had a very difficult job to do a, a million man army, and if he had fifty different things or one or two things that he could manufacture, then naturally um, it's more efficient to concentrate on the on the one or two than to try and supply you know the ammunition. Um, and the accoutrement for for fifty different things. So, undoubtedly, he had a very, very hard job, very hard job to do. And and I think you might be, um, you know, might be right about did in the end did he do the right thing? Let me ask a, a, a take a different tack, different question here. Um, I enjoyed this book. I thought it was interesting, and uh, you know, really did look at something. That, that, in a meaningful way, it went beyond just, just trivialities of you know, hey, Procter and Gamble used to make soap for soldiers, and now they're still here. Uh, it went in and told us a little bit more about how they got there and and, and why they got there, and and helped draw some connections between the home front and the uh, uh, the soldiers in, in a worthwhile way. And I'm saying that as a sort of preface. This always could be trouble, uh, but to connect that in your acknowledgments, you. Uh, mentioned at one point uh, three uh, people you, you've shared obvious uh, interest in the war with uh, uh, Russell Bonds, Eric Wittenberg, and Thomas Lowry, um, all of whom have, have written interesting books and all of whom have been on this show. Uh, uh, Russell Bonds was just on a few weeks ago, in fact. Uh, you refer to them in your acknowledgments as uh, historians who have helped you. Uh, but I would point out pedantically that two of them are lawyers and one is a doctor. Uh, that none of them, uh, and including yourself, none of the four of you, all of whom have written very interesting books, are are actual historians in the sense that that's what you do for a living. And listeners to the show know that I bring this topic up regularly. The the void of uh, the fact that the professional full time trained historians don't write a lot of Civil War books, or as many, and the result is that uh, some of the best Civil War writing is being done by lawyers, chemists, uh, nutritionists, uh, literally uh, doctors, other people. I'm at the point where I'm ready to to run up uh, the white flag of surrender uh, on this score, because this season on Civil War Talk Radio in our fifth season uh, George Rabel last week was our first uh, professional historian on the show. We had uh, a series of other people, who, some of whom have written really good books, none of whom uh, trained professionally in history beyond uh, a BA, if that. And I, I guess what I'm saying is I'm ready to, to throw in, in the towel and just say, you guys are, are taking over the field. But uh, to put the ball in your court, if I say to you, well, look, I, I had a chemistry set when I was a kid, and I read a lot of popular science books, and I subscribe to Scientific American, can I get a job at the next lab next to yours without a BA in the field or, or a master's degree? Would your company hire me? No, they wouldn't. Okay. Um, and But to, to add to that, um, you know, if you also look at the acknowledgments, mm-hmm. um, I, I received the benefit of some very generous help from some professional historians, um, especially Mark Wilson, also Richard John at University of Illinois at Chicago. Um, I know Richard, then, actually. Sure. And in the, in the preface of the book, um, 
I think I set out what my mission is, and it's not as a professional historian, but I think um, in the preface, also throughout the book, and especially in the essay on sources, I, um, I think there are some openings for some you know, very serious, more serious and professional follow-up work um, you already mentioned um, something earlier in in our talk about you know the after war experience mm -hmm. of of returning soldiers as employees. Um, you know what the, the experience might have been of you know returning to a um, to an employee instead of as a as a soldier. But there's some other you know really um, important historical considerations that I think you know deserve some follow up. Speaking of you know of Dupont, for example. Um, you know, is there room to really study how companies um, in the American Civil War secured their companies, especially ones close to the battlefield, from military movements or saboteurs? Um, you know, was it important to soldiers um, that they had a particular brand of weapon or a particular brand of soap, or were they just happy to have some? I don't know the answer to that question, but I asked those questions in the preface, um, and, and I hope somebody will, will pick what I see as a few, his, you know, serious historical questions up for, for further study. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I wouldn't have, have put that somewhat uh, contentious point out there, uh, but for the fact that I really like this book, and I, I urge our listeners to uh, get themselves a copy and take a look at it, because I think it's quite interesting. Uh, the the I guess what does concern me is uh, if if we get to the point where uh, I mean, I mean, you, you very correctly would go to talk to people like like Eric Wittenberg and uh, Thomas Lowry and Russell Bonds, who've, who've done uh, some really excellent work uh, that, from my reading of it, does largely meet professional standards. Um, it, but we are getting to a point where where my colleagues and I aren't doing our jobs, so that eventually there will be a whole cycle of uh, a whole separate world of historians. Uh, and I, I don't know quite what word to use. I don't want to say amateur. It sounds like you're not serious, but uh, uh, self-trained historians, maybe we'll say. Sure, but you know the same is true in, in my field too. There are some um, some you know scientists doing not what I consider you know the the meat of my job, and that's applied science, but but basic research. So I don't think it's a you know problem's not a fair word. I, I don't think it's just in you know, in, in your field as a professional and academic historian, there's certainly, um, you know, chemists and biologists and physicists doing um, arcane um, work that's out of the, the realm that would appeal to the average American. That doesn't make it any less, that doesn't make it any less important. Well, I, 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 I'm not defending those people, my colleagues who are writing the arcane stuff. Some of it, I think, is, is just ridiculous. Uh, but... As you described when you were writing about Scientific American, that was an era when uh, an inventor could, just with his workshop, a few tools and a good idea, come up with something that would you know, change the world. Um, you, you could be an inventor. Uh, you didn't need a degree to be an inventor, uh, or a chemist for that matter, or, or anything in those days. You just went and did it. Lincoln never had a law degree. Uh, those days are over in a lot of fields. Uh, you, you, I don't think you can be a chemist in your basement any longer and come up with anything worthwhile. Or am I mistaken about that? Um, no, I, I think you're right. There's been a professionalization um, in science um, since, obviously, the mid-19th century. Um, 
either because of organizations that um, can confer the degrees or, or serve as licensing boards. So science, unlike in the mid-19th century, has gone under its own professionalization as well. And, and you know, history did that, but it sort of backed away, or at least by it, it's now sequestered itself. It could become like uh, philology, you know, sort of obscure academic uh, pursuit where real history that people actually want to read is being written by uh, lawyers and chemists who, who actually are writing about what they care about and not trying to impress tenure committees. Uh, it, it's a sad state for the, the historical profession, uh, not a good state for history readers because the books are coming out and that's what's important. But uh, I, I thought your book really brought up an example of where some interesting work is being done uh, from outside the field that people ought to read and that, that my colleagues ought to take more notice of. Well, unfortunately, the Music in the background says we are out of time already. Uh, but, Jim, I really enjoyed uh, reading this book and hearing about it from you this afternoon. Oh, Jerry, thank you very much. It's been my privilege and pleasure. I appreciate, appreciate your kind words and this opportunity very much indeed. And, listeners, you will appreciate uh, reading Lincoln's Labels, America's Best-Known Brands in the Civil War by Jim Schmidt. And, once again, listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. The world is talking. World Talk Radio. Studio A.